This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. One of the questions I'm most frequently asked through the contact page at thesalesblog.com is what do I recommend in the way of a simple CRM for a small team or a growing team in a small or medium-sized business that isn't complex, that isn't super expensive, that's going to allow them to go out and do the work they need to do with their customers, to be able to have the tools that they need to manage the sales force to be up and running very, very quickly and with all of the things that you need without all the external things that have been bolted onto many CRMs that make it difficult for people to use. And for a long time, I've had nothing to recommend in that regard, but I have some friends at SAP and as we were exploring working together, I spent some time on their CRM and I think it's worth a look. If you're interested in growing your business with a very simple all-in-one CRM that's going to serve your needs without you paying for a lot of the things that you don't need, you want to take a look at the link here in the show notes and go out and check out SAP's digital CRM. And I'll tell you a few of the things that I like about it. I think that the most interesting thing about it is that you're going to be able to get up and running really quickly. You're going to have the ability to manage your contacts, which you need to do because that's the foundation of your relationships. You're going to be able to manage your opportunities. And a couple things that are super important to me, I think, are you're going to be able to personalize it to fit your company and the way that you work. And you're also going to find a CRM that was actually designed for mobile instead of having mobile as something that comes later. And at $22 per user per month, you literally can't beat that price. So if you need a simple all-in-one CRM that's going to serve you and that's going to serve your company without you paying for more than you need and without needing a bunch of programmers to help you build things, you want to go check out SAP's Digital CRM. Hit the link in the show notes and check out SAP Digital CRM. Michael Dallas is a sales coach and a workshop facilitator, sometimes for Richardson. He's also a speaker and the author of a new book called Sell Like a Team, the blueprint for building teams that win big at high stakes meetings. I think this is an important piece of work, and I invited Michael into the arena so that we could talk about the complexity of selling now when there's consensus necessary on the buyer side. And selling now when we have teams that include management, that include leadership, that include subject matter experts, and include operational people. The complexity has grown so much, it's interesting to see a book that's got an actionable blueprint for how you actually sell like a team. So this is Michael Dallas in the arena. Hey, Michael, how are you? 
Good morning, Anthony. I'm great. How are you doing today? I'm wonderful. I have been uh, reading your book, and I've got a bunch of questions for you, and I sort of want to take people on a journey through part of the book, and I want to get them to understand some of what's changed in the way that we sell today. And I, I want to start very early in the book. I think it's even in the first section of the book that you write about what is group performance discipline? And this to me is a fascinating concept and a fascinating idea. Where you got it was is also interesting to me. But I'd like to hear you talk about that if you don't mind sharing what group performance discipline means. Yeah, happy to. And thanks for thanks for the question. So what I learned over among the many things I've learned over 25 years working with with clients and client committees and working with with colleagues on the group sale is that we often get into routines. You know, where I started, the sale ended in a crescendo with a big final meeting. And that's where the decision was made. And so there was a lot of energy put around these big, what we called finals meetings. And, you know, the reality is what happens in a successful organization is people get into this routine. Oh, we have a finals presentation. They slap together whoever's available. They slap together a pitch deck and off they go to the sales meeting. Performance discipline is is different. It's thinking about how are we as a unit going to execute better than anybody else to be our best possible selves. And that requires a process if you want to consistently produce quality outcomes. And so what the book goes into is breaking down what I've learned over 25 years in being client facing also seven years as a as a sales coach across industries and also for the book research on high performing teams it's clear that there are stages that a team goes through to get ready for performance discipline and you also asked anthony about you know where that came from it, it's interesting how your life experiences lead you to to where you are today i grew up in new york city and i was a, a childhood actor so I did commercials and I did theater. And, you know, I left that all behind when I became an undergrad. And, you know, what's interesting is those lessons that I learned as an actor, mostly working with adults and the stagehands and the production crew and the director and the other actors, is that to have an effective performance, there are a number of things you need to do before the performance, including rehearsals. There are a number of things that you need to do during the performance to, to call those audibles, those unexpected events when they happen. And as a winning production company, there are certainly things you do afterwards to reflect. And that's, that's where I set the tone on performance discipline. But I want to stop there. I know my answer was a little bit rambling. I want to make sure I'm answering your question here. You were on point and uh, you answered the question perfectly. I learned about group performance dynamics as a young kid fronting a rock band. And, oh, right. We'll, we'll get to rehearsals, but I, I remember the first gig we played with a new drummer, and we opened up with the song Atomic Punk from Van Halen, which is mm -hmm. super fast, uh, upbeat. And the thing that I always did with a band, we rehearsed every day of our lives. So if it was Friday night and we were all going to go out, not until we rehearsed. And if it was Sunday mm -hmm. night, nothing got done until we rehearsed. And the idea was that we should be able to do whatever we need to do without thinking about the other person not being where they're supposed to be or not doing what yeah. they're supposed to do. And we had a drummer, and he was 
he was new to the group, but not that new. And he'd rehearsed a lot with us, but he didn't have some of the same discipline that we had. And we went out in our very first show and he started the song at half tempo. And you know a band is just totally off when every single member of the band has to turn around and look at the drummer. <laughs> and, and he felt all of us looking at him and not recognizing what, what he was doing wrong. And it was the worst beginning of a show. It's supposed to be high intensity and energy and you come out and you're at half tempo. You know what I love about that story is, and that there's a perfect analogy with the opening of an important sales meeting. It's it's like if you don't if if your team is not in sync, just like your band wasn't in sync, he's starting at a wrong tempo. Everybody's looking at themselves and wondering where are we going. It's a really difficult thing to recover from to have a great performance. It's not impossible, but it just takes a lot of energy. Same is true in a sales meeting. I, I love that story, Anthony. I don't have questions about the stress and pressure on the list of questions that I wrote out of the book, but there's I'll just point people. There's a lot of pressure to perform, and I think the bigger the deals, the more that pressure increases. And the fact that you have somebody completely on another page just contributes massively to the stress and the pressure. And I'll use that to shift us into another question. Why is there such an increase in the need for companies to buy as a team and then companies to respond to that by selling as a team? Yeah, so there are, especially for, for salespeople who are highly attuned to, to the changes, especially coming out of the financial crisis, let's take the buyer side first. There are a number of changes that, that you see. Companies are more attentive to risk. They're more attentive to the bottom line, and they're more able to self-source alternatives than they used to be. And so if you think about all of those things, they're more attentive to risk, meaning we have trained people and we've hired people to become super sellers or so-called lone wolves or hunters. And we have this fantasy that somebody's going to go out, they're going to find a prospect, it's going to be one person, and they're going to bring back that, you know, what you call the dream client. The reality is that's it's changed a lot. There is no one person anymore. In fact, Harvard Business Review in their March-April edition, there was an article that said, just in the last two years, the average number of decision makers on a purchase decision across industries went from 5.4 people to 6.8 people. That's in two years. So a lot of that is driven by risk. It's too risky for companies to have one person make a purchase decision. The second part from the buyer side is this attention to profit margins. So Having one person on the buyer side, for instance, negotiate a contract with one seller is also too risky. We need those budget dollars for other things. So you see procurement, finance officers, somebody separate from the salesperson's relationship step in and negotiate contract. It also means that there's less information sharing because the more information they share with you as a salesperson, the less leverage they have to protect their bottom line when it comes to negotiating the contract. And then that third component from, from the buyer side, more competition and more ability to get information means that they have more information, not just on you, but alternatives at the time they either reach out or you reach out to them as a, as a sales team. So that's number one, that's, that's the buyer side. So a, a lot of factors going on there. 
the seller side, there are a number of factors going on too. There's increased revenue pressure. So you think about now companies are getting more focused on sales enablement, sales efficiency, sales cadence, the speed with which deals move through the pipeline. They're getting much more attuned to metrics to measure those things. And there's intense pressure on revenue. There's also intense pressure coming down from the C-level to sell the organization. They've recovered from the financial crisis. They've built out capabilities. They want their people to represent the full suite of solutions. But again, going back to that individual super seller, you know, there's only so much that one person can reasonably know about and do. They're going to need other people to leverage the whole organization in something like the enterprise sale. And then finally, resources have, have become a different, different organizations treat them differently. But what I see across industries is more and more key resources like subject matter experts are being centralized and shared as opposed to distributed closer to where the customer or the client is. And what that means is that it gets more difficult for the individual salesperson to find out who their bench is and have real relationships with them so that when it comes to one of those key sales meetings, they know who to pull in and they can get that person. So I want to stop there and see what questions you have because I, I just want to, I wanted to give your listeners a sense for how complicated it's, it's become. Yeah, I just wanted to do a little level setting before we get into a few other questions, and that was perfect. It sort of describes the territory that we're covering. I want to go to page 14 on the book, which I know you have memorized every page by just uh, the number itself. Yeah, which Uh, sentence number? (laughs) It is. It's not a (laughs) sentence. It's the little chart that describes the gatekeeper for different decision makers or decision influencers. And I've shared this probably a dozen different ways. And I think that this is a critical insight that I've never mapped as neatly as you mapped it. But you have a map there to basically say something that I think salespeople are confused about right now. They think the gatekeeper is the personal assistant or the gatekeeper is the secretary to a certain individual. And you've done a good job charting this out because I've continually tried to explain, you could have the vice president of marketing be the gatekeeper to the CMO. I mean, that's the gatekeeper. And Mm -hmm. you've expanded the definition in a way that I think is useful. So can you share your observations about that chart specifically? Yeah, happy to, Anthony. So you know, I, I think you're right. When when we hear the word gatekeeper, immediately we go to, and I know it's a politically incorrect term, secretary or executive admin. And reality is, if you think about what a gatekeeper is, a gatekeeper grants or blocks access to somebody. And that's a really important role. But there are a lot of people within an organization who block or grant access to somebody else. So you can use any example. So the one you you had as a senior level VP of sales and marketing might be a gatekeeper to the CMO. CMO might be a gatekeeper to the CEO or to one of his or her colleagues also in the C-suite, you know, maybe a COO. I think the most extreme example for, for those people who've had experience selling to nonprofit organizations is the CEO can even be a gatekeeper. Because in nonprofits, the decisions are made at the board or a committee of the board. And you don't get access to them unless the CEO or senior level staff 
has bought off on that. And so it's important in, in terms of navigating the sale with those 6.8 people who are decision makers, you never know where those fall in the organization. And to map those, you got to understand where all those branches of that decision tree are, who blocks or grants access, and how are you going to navigate that no matter where in the organization it is. Brent and Nick from Challenger Customer wrote the forward to my next book, and I'm going to have to start busting their chops about the 5.4 and the 6.8. I mean, is it something that we're judging on height or is it the, <laughs> the, the capacity to make change inside their company? I mean, what, what metric is the 0.8? We just need to round up or down, I think. It's five or it's, we'll just go with seven. Well, I'd like to meet so, the 0.8 person. It'd be interesting. <laughs> yeah, whatever that means. We'll go with seven. And I think that if you're single-threaded, you're already way behind. And I, I think that the point that you make here is worth just sharing one other concept about. You need to know who can give you access in every situation, and you need to expand your thinking about it. And I think if you just go to page 14 and you look at the chart and you start mapping that for yourself and thinking, who normally can get me to the next person that I need, what it does is it expands your opportunity to think about how you work inside an organization and how you gain access to these stakeholders who are all going to be important. And that same article, I interviewed Brent and, and Nick about that article in HBR. And what's interesting is that these people don't agree themselves. They can't manage their calendars well enough to get together. And if you don't have a good plan to serve them through that buying journey, they, they end up not doing anything and taking a long time to make any decision. So that, that insight, I think, is worth sharing. And I want to move us into something more conceptual about the book that I also think is really important in today's environment for teams. Hey, Anthony. Itself. Yeah, go ahead. Anthony, can I? Yeah, I just want to go jump ahead. in sure. on, on that last point again, because, you know, what's interesting about this consensus sale is, you know, my impression is it also imagines that one person just needs to be involved in um, connecting with those 6.8 people to help them reach consensus. You know, one of the things that I've seen, especially over the last several years, is that, you know, remember where we started the conversation. My perspective is, you know, it's the crescendo of the sale, high level, high dollar B2B enterprises. It's the crescendo. It's the finals meeting. What I've seen is it's actually, it's not just the finals meeting anymore. You need to team up with people earlier in the process. And it actually happens in all size companies now, even entrepreneurial ventures. The point that I wanted to add is, you know, when you talk about getting access to one of those people, what, what happens is even if it's early in the sale, sometimes you're going to need a colleague. Maybe that colleague is internal, maybe it's external, but you've got to build the bench to be able to advance that relationship because that gate, if you don't have a successful meeting, that gate may all of a sudden close and that opportunity ended too soon. So just want to make sure I added that point before we moved on. I think you've got a story in the book about a personal experience where you went alone. I do. And it's a painful one. You know, <laughs> That's you know, why I brought I guess, it up. <laughs> you know, there are always moments in your professional and personal life that you wish you could have back. And this one was, I, I remember I was working for a very large money manager and part of my beat was calling on hedge fund managers and managing a portion of their hedge funds. And I decided I, I had a New York trip planned and this one person, I had some time on my schedule and I said, hey, can you see me? And fortunately, they said yes. And I got into the meeting and 
in about 10 minutes, not even 10 minutes, I was probably after introductions, they quickly wanted to go deep. And I was so far out of my depth. And so the lesson learned there is, you know, it was an early stage meeting. I thought, you know, I've got solid product knowledge here, but I wasn't really thinking about the stakeholders and their depth of knowledge and their interests. And I really needed to team up with somebody who could go deep in that meeting to advance the sale. I thought it was a great opportunity. It was in my pipeline foolishly, and it quickly got out of my pipeline. I have this thing on the over-reliance on SMEs. And uh, I think that this this is just a, a segue for us to run down just for a minute. But I think that if you want to be a trusted advisor, you only need two things, trust and advice. And if you show up and you don't have the advice, then you can't be a trusted advisor. So if the SME has 100% subject matter expertise, I think now the requirement for a rep is to have 48.7%, since we're going to use percentages with a (laughs) decimal point, percent subject matter expert. So you can't be the SME, and we don't need you to be the SME. But you yeah. also can't be a know-nothing either. You may find yourself in a situation where it gets technical or more technical. And the thing that I continue to challenge salespeople with is, look, I don't expect you to be a SME, but you ought to have a working knowledge. And if you've been on 10 calls with a SME, you ought to start having their shtick down by writing down the questions that they ask, writing down the responses that they get from client questions, and then educating yourself by by saying, look, you know, I need to be able to navigate part of this with or without you because it is a shared resource now and I can't have the SME for every meeting that I go on. So now such is great such a great point. And you know, part of it is also managing your reputation with within your organization because you'll SMEs and other distributed central resources, they want to go where they're going to win, where they're going to drive revenue. And if you're the sort of person who always asks people for poorly qualified meetings and it never results in anything, you're quickly going to get upstaged by another sales rep who's got a better winning percentage than you do. We should say SME is subject matter expert, just in case there are people listening who are like, what is a SME? <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and what are you if you're a SME Bogart and you're always monopolizing SMEs for your own purposes because you've decided that you're going to be a dependent and not get some of the chops that you need to do this? I want to move us into, this is a good segue too, I want to talk about trust And I've studied a lot about high-performing teams, and there's this esprit de corps, there's this unit cohesion that ends up making a team really special. And it it allows them to over-index in results because there is this trust that exists. So I want you to just, if you could answer a question about trust and how important that is in a team's performance. And also, if you wouldn't mind, give people a couple of the things that we do that destroy that trust? Boy, that, that is a heavy question. That's a whole podcast by itself. Uh, I it know, is. It we're we're, we're going to just touch it. Also an important topic. So let's go back to your own example uh, with, with the drummer in your band. He was somebody that you didn't know well. The team didn't know well. You weren't completely in sync. And so you think about the things that are required for you to have that sort of connection with somebody. You need to know them well. They need to know you well. Think about any relationship in your life. You've encountered conflict and were able to overcome that conflict. You understand where each other 
is trying to get to, and you're willing to help each other get there. Those are some examples. Boy, there are so many examples of, of how to fracture that trust, either with a customer or an internal colleague. But when you think about that and you think about all the changes we were talking about earlier, Anthony, you can see how when you get invited to a key sales meeting and all of a sudden you start reaching out for anybody who's available and you really don't know them that well and they don't know you that well, you can see how that path, I mean, you've got a very low likelihood of success there. I include a number of stories in the book about what teams look like when they're in sync. There's a visual connection. People are leaning in. They know what the other person's doing. If there are two or three people in a six-person meeting, they've situated, they've been very intentional about how they seat themselves so that they can not only be focused on their customer, but they can also be focused on themselves, including the team leader, so that the colleagues who are supporting that team leader and advancing the sale, they can understand his or her cues because those have all been sorted out. So it's really complicated group dynamics, but it all starts with a basis of mutual trust and credibility, which is another thing that's required of a salesperson that's going to succeed in this environment. You've got to pre-invest in those relationships, both vertically within your group, understanding senior people and junior people who can support you, including subject matter experts who might be peers, but also broadly, especially if you work in a large organization across other different product lines or business areas, people who potentially can support you or potentially you might in some sales opportunities be the subject matter expert for them to advance a much bigger sale. But trust, credibility, it's foundational for winning the group sale, Anthony. I'm going to take this and I'm just going to move us forward to your framework. And I want to compliment you on the book in one particular area that I'm very specific about having strong opinions about. The book is 100% actionable. It's got a framework. It's got questions. It's got worksheets. It is 100% actionable. So if you saw on a team and you want to improve your team performance, just the book alone will do that for you. But you have to apply what's in the book. And I want to just deal with one of your your uh, areas in the framework, which is create, organize, practice, execute, and regroup. And I want to go mm-hmm. right to practice because I want to mm-hmm. talk about the importance of rehearsal. And mm-hmm. it, it's infrequently done. And True. I think teams are giving up way too much. And you've probably had the same experience where you've seen two people on the same team disagree in front of a client. Or or two people take two different paths that literally confuse the client because they're getting recommendations that seem so diametrically opposed that now they look at this team and think, I'm not sure how I feel about this team because I like this one thing, but now the other thing has totally diminished that because I'm not sure how to think about it anymore. And it is this ability to say, I've made a thousand sales calls before. I know how to make a sales call. And so I'm going to go in and do what I've done. And the expert on expertise, Kay Anders Erickson, had a a quote, I think, in Fast Company that said, I've been walking for 48 years, but I'm not getting any better at it. And, And I think that, you know, the fact that you're making another sales call and that you've made a lot of sales calls, you've made a lot of sales calls that were a lot like sales calls before. It doesn't, it doesn't indicate that there's an improvement. But mm-hmm. the practicing and the rehearsal and making sure that this is aligned in this most valuable interaction we get where there's far too few of them, 
it seems to me that the investment of the time to rehearse and make sure that you've got a good strategy makes sense. Why is it so infrequently practiced and what are teams giving up? Well, you know, there's no one right answer to this, but I'll, I'll give you just general themes that I see. I think if you go back to one of the themes we talked about earlier, resources are not necessarily distributed. They're not where the customer is. And so, because you're pulling people in who are shared resources, they live in other parts of the country, sometimes other parts of the world. Time is a factor because everybody has other things that they're trying to accomplish. Priorities. If you've got people, subject matter experts or salespeople from other product areas, it's easy to assume that they want to win the sale as much as you do, but that's, that's a trap. And so, For all of those reasons, what typically happens is we're too busy, we're not available. If we get together, it's the night before the big sales meeting. It probably involves dinner, which is fine. I'm a big fan of of food and adult beverages. At the same time, you know, that's not a practice session. You know, that's good to to build, like you said, esprit de corps to get people to know each other, and that's going to be helpful, but that's not practice. We've talked throughout our short time together today, Anthony, about all the complicated parts about building a team that comes together that's visually connected when it matters. If you don't practice, I mean, there are so many examples of of what could go wrong. And what we're trying to get is that visual connection. We need groups to come together and form that team and build that trust so that they are visually connected in that moment that matters to not practice. I mean, you pick any professional enterprise, whether it's an F1 racing team, whether it's a military company, whether it's a theater company or an orchestra, a sports team. They not only practice their craft individually, which you talk a lot about, you know, perform as as an individual salesperson, win your dream client. This is about you need to get this team to come together really quickly under very difficult conditions. And we need to invest in that too. And that's exactly what practice is. I have uh, one little conflict there is when the band was rehearsing, there were adult beverages specifically because we were practicing in the actual state we would be performing in. That was our, our thinking is that you need the adult beverages during the rehearsal. I think on the early side, on the early parts of adult beverages, it can really inspire creativity. <laughs> I think after hour one, two, and three, there are diminishing returns. And probably not a great idea right before the performance. Maybe not. I, have, I, I had that experience. I want to talk about one more team dynamic. And what I've tried to pick out here are the mistakes that people make. And this one's a big one, and it's honest feedback. Mm. I've seen team meet, meet members, I've seen team leaders say absolutely nothing about a peer's poor performance in a room where there's a team sale going on. And I can see the damage that it does to the team because it, it's going back to losing part of the trust in the unit cohesion when somebody's so far off or they're unprepared or they come in and they're not on the same page that we are. How important is honest feedback in being able to improve the performance of a team over time? Whether it's over time or whether it's tactically to succeed at one meeting, the feedback loop is is critical. And what we see is that people don't get the kind of real feedback that's going to allow them to make a correction 
that's going to increase their impact at a key meeting or in their career. So I, in the book, I tried to, and, and, and thank you for your comment earlier about everything in the book is actionable. It was designed to be pragmatic because, you know, when I originally decided to write the book, I found nothing that was out there that was current and nothing out there that was practical. And I really wanted to, to solve for that. But getting to the feedback question, feedback has to hit at least three bases. It's got to be balanced, meaning there's got to be at least one or more strengths, and there, there've got to be a delta. There's got to always an area for improvement. No matter how strong somebody is, there's always something that they could tighten. So good feedback is balanced. Number two, it's specific. Give examples of what you liked or what you didn't like and what the impact was. And number three, be honest. It doesn't mean you know, again, okay. me as the native New Yorker, sometimes I can be brutally honest. You, but you, we try to you suck. <laughs> yeah. Now a little too honest. That, yeah. So, you know, truth aside, <laughs> truth aside, be sensitive to the person's feelings, but but don't dance around the issue. So balance specific honest are three bases that we talk about in terms of giving feedback. I'd also say in terms of the team dynamic for a key meeting, the feedback opportunities are before the meeting. And ideally not the night before. We can start giving feedback if you test, for instance, what are the key points that you're going to make in the meeting? Let's say it's in a a call, our initial call for the meeting, a week before the meeting as we're talking about things like logistics, presentation materials, having people talk a little bit about what they're planning on saying, how they're planning on introducing themselves, gives us all as a team an opportunity to give feedback before the meeting. During the meeting, be aware be visually connected with everybody. Don't judge, but be aware of what's working, what's not, so that after the meeting, we can also give feedback as a team, but also individually, so we can continue to reinvest in those relationships and continue to build trust so we can help people who struggled get better. We can help people who knocked it out of the park do that again on that next key sales meeting. I want to ask one more question before we finish up. And this one, I, I think just in the the sheer tactical, how do you execute a good meeting? This one is probably one that you've, you've given some attention to in the book. But I mean, th- this is one that could change results for you right away. How do you keep from running out of time in meetings? So somebody has to be the time manager. Somebody has to be the team leader. And in a team of peers... And oftentimes we have that, a team of peers. Sometimes you're the salesperson, but you've got people more senior to you in your organization. You are the team leader. If you do not lead that team, if you do not manage the meeting and manage the time, 100%, somebody else is going to manage it for you. It's either going to be the customer or it's going to be somebody else on your team who's got a different sense for you about how to do that. So in terms of managing time, number one, you need to have an agenda, and the team needs to rally around that agenda. Number two, you and need there's to there's a template in the sorry, book for that, too. There, there is. There is. And it seems basic, but I find that a lot of people, they, like, it's too formal. It's, whether you give it to the customer or not, you should have a roadmap for how you're going to budget time in that meeting. Number two, you have to manage the meeting, whether it's an expert going on too long or a client contact going on too long. We need to check in from time to time 
to continually manage manage that conversation and manage to the agenda that we all agreed at the start of the meeting was going to be the roadmap for the meeting. The other thing is if we don't manage the time, Anthony, this happens far too often. The meeting comes to an end because you're having a good conversation. Everybody's excited. All of a sudden, you're up against you know the 130 deadline. Client contacts are standing up and walking out. We haven't allowed time for final questions, and we haven't allowed time for close. And so budgeting time, and especially in a formal presentation for Q&A, at least five or 10 minutes, and also close at least five minutes so you can know where you stand. Regardless of what you hoped to accomplish in terms of an agenda in that meeting, you've got to take ownership of budgeting that time and managing to that agenda and moving on, even though there's good conversation going on. I've seen a C-level executive sit in a meeting and do the personal connection thing with a group of people for, I'll call it plus or minus 20 minutes. And and, and in a two-hour meeting, yeah. you, know, you might not think that's a lot of time, but the meeting runs out of time because they spent time on something that isn't really going to help 13 of the 14 people in that room feel better about making a decision to buy. I think this is... The one thing is you need constraints. And I think following a worksheet like yours, if somebody feels constrained by that, constraints can be empowering. So I wouldn't look at it as disempowering. I'd look at it as empowering to say, we need to spend time here, here, and here and make sure that I check all those boxes. I think it's a mistake not to. Where do people go to buy the book right now? It's available everywhere. Sell Like a Team was was published a week or so ago by McGraw-Hill. It's available on Amazon. It's available on Barnes & Noble, both online and in stores. Just about anywhere you want it, you'll find it. And where do people go to learn more about you and your work? Well, so two different places. Drive Sales Consulting is, is where I coach salespeople and sales teams who are getting ready for key sales meetings. So drivesalesconsulting.com. I also do work with one of the leading sales training companies in the industry, the Richardson Company. I lead workshops with them, and I, I'm also a frequent writer on their, on their blogs. Cool. Thank you so much for being here, Michael. The book's terrific. My pleasure, Anthony. It's been a pleasure, as always, talking with you. That was Michael Dallas, author of Sell Like a Team, and you can find him at drivesalesconsulting.com. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com, where I publish every day, and you do want to sign up there for the Sunday newsletter, my best work each week. And you also want to go out to youtube.com forward slash Anarino. You'll find that in the show notes and subscribe to the channel called Every Day, where every day I post a blog about sales, about business, about leadership, about coaching, and about success. I'm Anthony Anarino. Until next time, I'll see you in the arena. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.